Hello and welcome to Living Being. I'm Chris Park. I'm Verity Sharp. I'm Patrick Randall. And this is the podcast where we're going to celebrate everything that's wondrous about bees. So in this episode, we're talking to Nicola Bradbear of Bees for Development and really excited to be talking to her. And uh, uh, Patrick and Verity here. Hello. We are indeed. Yeah. How are your bees, Chris? Really good. You know, they're they're really strong and, you know, lots of forage at the moment. And last night I slept on top of them. <laughs> I do it about once a week. So that, that's my, you slept my kind of show on and tell this week. You slept on top of them. Yes, in the we have a the apitherapy house has sort of two bee beds in it, so you can lie down on top of the bees and, and oh. you can hear them murmuring and buzzing away beneath you as you no kind of fall way. into your dream space and and breathe in all the beehive air, which is it's just delicious. It's, it's really good for my back as well because it's quite a sort of hard surface with a with a sort of mini mattress on. But what are the it's benefits beyond that? I mean, what you know, it sounds. I mean, it just sounds wonderful. But um, you know, it's obviously not a kind of gimmick, is it? I mean, what's what are the benefits of sleeping with bees? Oh, <laughs> well, I mean, there are so many. Actually, you get micro vibrations, which are meant to be really good for you. But I'm sure you'd probably get that on a train, wouldn't you, or something? And and uh, you know, and uh, the beehive air is is what the the apitherapy house is all about, really. And the the bees can't come out into the room. They they have their entrance on the outside of the building, and but you're on top of the hives, and there are vents that let the air through. There are even face masks that you can wear, and the air is full of all the medicines and and the antimicrobial, antibacterial goodness of the hive. Propolis and honey and royal jelly and and even the pollen and all those things create such a healthy environment inside the beehive, and that permeates into the room and fills it up with that air. So all night long, as you're sort of going into your theta brain waves and your sort of deep long breaths sort of breathe, breathing that in and it's so good for you good grief so do you feel noticeably energized the next day yes i do i mean and, <laughs> and you know the, the the days get light early this time of year don't they so it springs me up a bit a bit earlier but yeah it's it's good for me it's really good for me i do it once a week and i do feel like it's going to be part of my new sort of routine of being of, of uh sustaining myself <laughs> perpetuating my uh, wee little life with uh, bee so products good. and things like that and, and we offer it to the world actually uh, people can come along and book it and not overnight but for for like an hour or two or or, or a few to enjoy the the beehive air therapy yeah it's a good thing so you and i spoke to nicola didn't we you've known nicola for a while haven't you chris yes i can't remember how long i don't remember how we met she feels like family in a way <laughs> she's nicola you know and I do some work uh, with Bees for Development and making skeps and, and some various beekeeping things and always go to their quiz and, and, and try and support them as much as I can. And, and Nicola's a, a wonderful person. And this is all about beekeeping all around the world, isn't it? I'm, I'm absolutely dying to hear this because I think this is a fascinating um, subject because there is something about bees, the, the kind of independence of bees that somehow lends itself to this sort of egalitarian um, sort of approach, you know, kind of like, you know, people can get involved wherever they are, but I bet you there's all manner of ways of doing that, which I'm really looking forward to hearing about. 
Yes. So, without further ado, let's listen to the interview with Nicola Bradburn. Nicola. Hi. Thank you so much for talking to us um, on Living Being. It's um, it's a real treat. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Nicola, for me too. I think of all the people I know, um, we're so happy that you're here because uh, I, I think my experience of you, you're just a champion of everyone else. You are, you are kind of, you are advocating and expounding all the, all the glories oh. of everybody that you know. And, uh, so I'd like to take today's opportunity to, to do that for you, I suppose, because you seem to be you see, you kind of humbly um, and very subtly um, encourage many oh amazing things to happen in the beekeeping world. And, uh, and sometimes, you know, obviously very publicly, but, you know, in, in a course of a perhaps British and a, and a skillful way, um, uh, I don't actually know that much about you <laughs> if you know what I mean well of course I know lots lots about you as a person but not about not much about about um your beekeeping history and your background and things like that so this is our opportunity um to uh, to celebrate you a bit more if that's okay with you I think I might be <laughs> blushing that's <laughs> <laughs> great great <laughs> good then then it's all working very well so um you are Nicola Bradbear Mm-hmm. And you you sort of dwell in the in the Welsh borders, mm-hmm. and and do do lots of amazing things. Um, but I don't know where you were born or if you've been beekeeping from an early age, all those kind of things. So, um, where should we start? Uh, how, how did you come to be in this world? Ah, well, in, how did I come to be in the beekeeping world? Anyway, <laughs> um, like many people, my my dad was a beekeeper, so I knew about beekeeping. Um, well, all the time, really, and was yeah. very interested and used to do beekeeping with him. And I think that's how many, many people all over the world actually get interested in bees and beekeeping. It's just yeah. something you yeah. learn from their parents or grandparents. So it's a part of, part of your formative years, and it, and it just, excuse the pun, but just stuck. Yes, and, uh, exactly. And, and where was that? Was that in... I don't know which county in uh, England, I imagine. No, I was born in Edinburgh, and uh, uh-huh. first part of my childhood was in Scotland, and then my parents moved south, uh, and uh, I live even further south now in Monmouth on the Welsh border, as you said. Um, and then uh, my interest growing up and as a student was in. Uh, world development. There was meant to be a world food shortage at that time. And I did biochemistry. And then I went on to do a PhD. And it was all about using plant proteins for human nutrition. I'm a very um, ardent vegan and vegetarian. And it was all about how we could feed the world on uh, plant proteins. And then I was... um, doing research on that and then uh, I just thought it was a complete waste of time I wasn't ever going to make any difference to anybody Um, and at some point I was in India and traveling and some kind of penny dropped that beekeeping is just the most wonderful rural activity that helps people 
produce a very egalitarian product, which is honey, that they can sell at a good price. Um, and so I packed in the biochemistry and I got my first job at the International Bee Research Association and a lady called Eva Crane was my boss, who's kind of a great doyen of, of beekeeping. Um, and I yes. worked there for 10 years uh, doing beekeeping for what in those days was called overseas development. Um, uh -huh. Uh -huh. So that's that's how it happened, really. That's brilliant. I didn't know that. That's wonderful to hear. And and my, what what I must ask now is that if you were speaking to a vegan who was saying, "Oh, don't eat honey because I'm vegan," uh, how how would you reassure them, or how yes. how could you encourage them, or yes. say, "Well, actually, you could." And, and what, well, what would absolutely. You say? Well, I am a vegan. And yet I spend my life encouraging people to do beekeeping. So that might sound like a dichotomy, but um, uh, it, <laughs> it's difficult to draw lines in this vegan business. Yeah. Um, and for example, if we look at forests in Africa, those forests are full of bees and they're full of beekeepers. And if those beekeepers were not beekeeping and harvesting honey and wax and creating livelihood, those forests would be cleared and all of that biodiversity would be lost. And uh, so I've no, absolutely no doubt about encouraging those people to keep doing beekeeping in those forests because it's retaining that forest. Um, so, and I think it's the same, you can do beekeeping here quite happily as a vegan <laughs> because uh, honey, uh, bees store a surplus of honey. You don't have to starve your bees to death. You can take the surplus off quite happily here and enjoy it um, and live very well with bees. Such so. generous creatures, aren't they? So they're so generative and prolific. Yes, they do, absolutely. Do really, and then they might swarm off one day, leaving all this great treasure behind because they want to be on Newcomb or something, or for many different reasons. They might swarm off and then cast again, and, and then all this goodness is left behind and, and for nature or... Or a honey hunter or a beekeeper. Yes, that's right. And you do a good job. That's right. Yeah. Great. Uh, so, uh, and you, uh, you. Here's a story for, for you. I was in Wales recently, and I was delivering a skep to to near Cumbran, and I went to visit some old friends from the Druid community, and uh, on my way back, and they said, "Have a look at this. Look what we've got at the end of our garden." And they had a bee bowl, oh. and it was behind one of their sheds. Two bee bowls, and one had fallen down. And uh, and I, so I told them about the, the International Bee Research Association and all the great work that they've done in the bee bowl registry. So for listeners, a bee bowl is like an alcove in a wall or a cottage or, or for a, an old style of beehive. And, uh, and there are many throughout the country. And, and this organisation has a register of all the different bee bowls and their shapes and sizes. And... Uh, and my friend said, oh, I grew up in Chalfont St. Giles <laughs> and my oh. mother worked for, the, uh, was it a mother or grandmother? Someone worked for the International Bee Research Association oh. for a bit and that kind of stuff. Well, it was really a real circular story. And, yes. uh, and so we're going to try and get some funding you know, to, for them to repair their bee bowls. And, and so you, you worked through in the International Bee Research Association and that, of course, 
led you to have a great understanding of the whole world of beekeeping, not just British beekeeping, but beekeeping all over the world and how it's done differently, perhaps more simply, perhaps more sensitively or, or less intensively. And so I think of anyone I know that has this international understanding of the human's relationship with bees. And, and I love your story, by the way, of the, of the of the forestry and how a human being is, is like an intrinsic part of that ecosystem in a way and, yeah. and preserving that. And so I'd, I'd love to hear, personally, really like to hear about that or some more about that and how, how different beekeeping might be around the world to how we do it here with our science and intervention and yes yes well intensive nature um beekeeping like everything else you know there is there is a kind of globalized beekeeping which is to keep european honeybees in frame hives which makes them a kind of modular system so you can transport bees on trucks and put bees on planes and things and that's a globalized intensive beekeeping uh, which is practiced here in the UK and, of course, in, in many industrialised countries. But then there's a whole other, far more interesting <laughs> load of beekeeping going on, um, which is really different all over the world because bees are different all over the world. Um, there's different species of bees and different races of bees. And... For example, the bees we have here in the UK are the same species as the bees in the in the tropics of Africa, but their biology and behaviour is completely different. So those bees in the tropics are very nomadic. They move about. Um, if they're disturbed by ants, they just move off and go and nest somewhere else. Whereas bees here in the temperate climate, they can't afford to do that. They have to stay put because it wouldn't be safe, it wouldn't be a good strategy to go and move house, um, you know, at the yeah. wrong time of year when nothing's flowering. So bees are really different all over the world, and uh, the beekeeping practices. Are Even in one country, you can find completely different beekeeping practices going on, and the reasons why people are doing the beekeeping can be different. In many countries, people are more interested in honey as a medicine, they wouldn't they wouldn't dream of just spreading it lavishly on toast and eating it. It's a kind of precious tonic food that you would eat by a teaspoonful and you'd give it to uh, people that are poorly or old people or um, pregnant women would have honey as a special tonic and it's not regarded just as a food that you eat every day of the week as we would. Um, so the beekeeping's different and the bees are different. Um, and there's no one size fits all. <laughs> yeah. By comparison, our beekeeping is quite uh, industrial, really, the way we do this modular beekeeping in frame hives and track them around um, as a kind of agricultural input, really, nowadays. Yes. <laughs> and and I, I'd imagine, I guess like most businesses, like most uh, most things that have an economy that kind of rules the the, the practices that it, the, the spirit of it can be tainted slightly or, or a lot. <laughs> um, but just I mean, I mean, I suppose we are a we are a a species that that do that in in many 
aspects of of life, don't we? We we, we can tend to find a resource and, and kind of eat it all up until it's gone. And especially in in a in a um, in a situation where we have towns and cities and big populations. But that's where we're at at the moment in the world, isn't it? And and of course, beekeeping still can be sensitive, or can be done sensitively. Depending on how you do it, I mean, you could you could say that no two beekeepers are the same, couldn't you? Even if they have the same, the exact same kit, and the, and the exact same place, and uh, and your beekeeping. Well, so you you must have experienced or many different styles of hive, and and maybe developed a preference for a hive or a style of management. How do you keep your bees now, and how how did you first keep your bees? <laughs> Oh, well, when I started beekeeping, I was doing it um, pretty much the same way as everybody else in Britain in uh, frame hives. But then when I started working in different countries, I saw that beekeepers in other places kept bees very differently. And uh, in poor countries, people keep bees in simple ways. They just provide a container for the bees to nest inside. And... uh, I slowly perceived that actually uh, that beekeeping is much more healthy than the beekeeping that we do here. Those those beekeepers never say they don't have enough bees. They never say they have problems with diseases because the bees are living naturally in the hive and also evolving naturally. So, for example, when Varroa arrived in Africa, uh, the bees evolved and uh, natural selection selected out those colonies that could survive in the presence of the varroa mite so that now varroa is everywhere but no African beekeepers worry about it and they certainly don't use any chemicals to try and control it uh, because bees have been around a long time they are quite good at evolving to meet a new problem pathogen and deal with it uh, so I nowadays really favour kinds of beekeeping where the bees are living more naturally than they do when they're forced to live in the rectangles inside a, a frame hive as we a frame hives make make the colony handy for the beekeeper but it's not how bees have evolved to live and to maintain their nest temperature and heat and temperature and humidity and all the pheromones that bees communicate with in a in a natural kind of egg-shaped colony, this all works much better for the bees than it does in a in a rectangular um, wired up frame hive. <laughs> Could you just describe some of the containers that, that people might be keeping bees in in different countries? So in very poor countries Uh, People are not going to spend any money on beekeeping equipment. Obviously, they don't have money and they don't really have hobbies in the same way as we do. Uh, Beekeeping is part of their livelihood and they make very good hives with whatever they have available. So uh, very often hives are made from woven bamboo um, and Chris knows very well how to do this. And it's pretty similar to what we call a skep, a basket hive in Britain, but people would weave a hive from bamboo and then cover it in clume, which is a mixture of clay and and cow dung or something, 
very similar to how we made skeps in Europe in the olden days. Uh, so a hive is really just a container for the bees to nest inside. And in a good world, it would be warm in cold weather and cool in warm weather, the right volume for a honeybee colony and safe from pests and predators. And you can make that container, uh, as I say, from a basket, from planks of wood. Uh, you often see beekeeping, bee, a honeybee colony being kept inside a big calabash. That's like a great big good. In West Africa, you often see clay pot hives. These are like big water pots, but used instead for a honeybee colony to live in. Uh, so hives come in all shapes and sizes and, well, no, that's not true, sorry. Hives come in uh, different materials to make the hive, but at the end of the day, what a honeybee colony wants is a volume of uh, 40 or 50 litres, so quite a big cavity for them to have space to build their nest and store honey. Just just another question on, on the beekeeping day. I mean, we've got uh, here, you know, beekeepers kind of often tends, tend to inspect their colonies every week because they're worried about swarming. And that's on the sort of what you might call a modern mm -hmm. way of beekeeping. How might people mm -hmm. work? How might people work on with their bees uh, in other countries? For very poor people, beekeeping is not a hobby. It's it's part of their livelihood. And those people work hard to create a livelihood. They don't have time to just go and uh, interfere with their bees out of interest's sake. Mm -hmm. They mainly would set up a nice empty hive, bait it with some aromatic herbs or some beeswax, wait for a colony to arrive, and they might watch the hive and observe what's happening but really the next intervention will be to harvest honeycomb from that hive. So really it's, it's minimal interference with the bees. Yep. And now that we understand more about the honeybee colony, actually that lack of interference also enables the bees to maintain their good health. Absolutely. Just the same as us. If you... Um, you know, you don't go and have an operation unless you're really ill. Otherwise, it, it's just damaging for you. And every time we open a honeybee colony, we, dis we disturb the integrity of the brood nest. We let out all the pheromones that the bees are communicating with. We let out uh, the, the humid air. We let out the warmth. So every time you interfere with a honeybee colony, you are stressing it to a certain extent. And nowadays... Our bees are already facing so many stresses. They have viruses of their own. They have pesticides. They have poor nutrition. And an interfering beekeeper is, is just another stress, really. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, it's such a paradox, isn't it? Or ironic even that in, in Britain and other countries like Britain, we tend to have such a, a culture of of having a look to see if there is a disease and checking mm. for disease uh, and worrying about disease and scrutinising, you know, that sort of scientifically penetrating the, 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 the mysteries of the hive to, to scrutinise it to the, to the highest degree to see if there is a disease. When the very act maybe and possibly is causing disease and stress and, yes. and, uh, and, and the uh, heightening the, the risk of, uh, 
of succumbing to disease and yes. spores and things. So it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? I suppose, and but uh, I suppose I'd like to add that also the act of bees swarming um, is obviously something I'd imagine that beekeeping in developing countries and other countries uh, they allow bees to swarm, do they, or or do they try and stop swarming? Uh, because that's a, that's another big thing in Britain that sort of contemporary conventional beekeepers will try and do a lot of is to stop the bees from swarming to build up a large artificial honey-producing unit to maximise on profit and, and very sort of beekeeper-centred attitude. And, and uh, is, does that happen abroad? I imagine it must be some places. <laughs> no, it, no swarm, there's whole books written on how to stop your bees swarming. Uh, but in other countries, beekeepers would think that's a very funny thing to do because uh, bees need to swarm to reproduce and... Now, as we learn more about the honeybee colony, actually the swarming part of the cycle is when it's the opportunity for the colony to really heal itself. So when the new swarm arrives in a new place, they have to quickly build their comb, their beeswax comb to nest on. And actually when that, when those bees left the parent colony, they fill their honey stomach with honey and then that honey is now converted into beeswax by the bees and any bacteria that those bees are carrying with them will be now encased in that beeswax. And because there's no brood, there's no young bees in the new swarm, actually a swarm of bees is the cleanest, brand new, uh, perfect disease-free little honeybee colony. And for a long time, uh, beekeepers here in Britain have been taught that, you know, a, swarms are dangerous things that can spread diseases, but it's not correct. A swarm is actually the cleanest little honeybee colony you'll ever have. And Bees when, love swarming, don't they? They absolutely they, love it. And whatever anybody says, you can't stop them swarming. They want, they, that's what they <laughs> want to do. <laughs> Yeah, and the more and you when, try, the more more misadventure can happen. Yes, exactly. And the the swarm itself is has, is very clean and brand new. But the parent colony, because it's swarmed, um, and the old queen leaves, uh, so there's a break in the brood cycle. So with problems like varroa and so on, it's a break in the cycles of those parasites. So actually swarming is, is nature's way of giving honeybee colonies a break from, from parasites that they're carrying. And this isn't really well enough understood. We, 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 as you say, Chris, in Britain, we think swarming is about... Of course, if you're interested in maximum honey production, yes, you are reducing the size of your colony, but uh, we compromise the health of bees by trying always to maintain great big colonies so would you say that and this is such a leading question and obviously i know the answers are going to give but so would you say that if if you're a beekeeper and you are you're able to allow your bees to swarm and you're able to keep them with a, a less intensive a less intrusive style and uh and perhaps a, a kinder style of beekeeping that they'll be healthier oh definitely happier. yes yeah. yes yeah. yes yes <laughs> At, at bees which, is, which is what all beekeepers want, don't they? All yes. beekeepers want to have healthy bees. Yes, and you you keep your bees like that, don't you, Chris? 
and yes, yeah, and you have yeah. enough bees, don't you? Way too many bees. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but you know, exactly. but there's that interesting, there's that interesting uh, sense. So I suppose being brought up in a Western place with your, you know, we have our own bank balance and our own front door, and you know, and in other countries it's slightly more community-minded than here, isn't it? And, and, mm. and so there's always that that element, that feeling inside of when a when a swarm's happening. I think, oh, I don't want to lose that. You know, well, that's mine. I want mm. to keep that, and, and uh, for a few different reasons, I suppose. Because uh, because I like to give them a good home and all those vir- virtuous reasons, but also because because you know I've sort of nurtured it. I don't want to lose it, so it's, it's kind of selfish reasons as well, of course. And perhaps in in more community-minded or less uh, in countries where there's less about the cult of the individual, uh, perhaps like losing a swarm is like is not you're not losing a swarm because it's just going. Yes, you know, it's just, it's just oh. uh, you never I never owned it in the first place, kind of thing. Or, yes, I don't know. Maybe that's, that's a romantic right. ideal, but um, I'm sure there's a difference. Yes, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think. I mean, most beekeepers in poor countries they would start their beekeeping just by putting out an empty hive, and a passing swarm will occupy it. And so uh, the mobility of bees and the presence of swarms is much more taken for granted. I think we've got uh-huh. a bit detached from nature here, haven't we? Um, yeah. yeah. Yep. A swarm is seen as something that shouldn't be allowed because it's not... <laughs> it's, they're, they're disrupting public order or something. But actually, I think lots of people in, in urban environments are absolutely delighted to see a swarm. And nowadays... You can have grown-up people who've never seen a swarm in their life, which is really sad because yeah. it's a marvellous phenomenon to see. It's great fun to mm-hmm. see a swarm going overhead. Yeah, absolutely. And it could be a peak moment that someone might recall to you from their childhood when they did see a swarm. You know, yes. When someone learns you're a beekeeper, they say, oh, I saw a swarm once. And it, you know, it's really something that sticks in your memory if you're not a beekeeper. Yes. Uh, we ought to ask you a bit more about bees for development, and I don't know how it began. Uh, and I certainly know now that it does it does brilliant work in many countries, and you have uh, trained up people uh, working abroad and encouraging beekeeping for for people's lives and livelihoods. And uh, and, and we have a great quiz, don't we, at the National Honey Show every year? Yeah. <laughs> which uh, and uh, and you. Uh, run courses and give talks and host um, presentations and, and do many, many, many things. But most of the work happens uh, in an office in, in Monmouth and then, of course, from there, many outreach projects all over the world. And So h- how did that begin? Um, well, I, as I said before, I worked for 10 years at the International Bee Research Association and then in the fullness of time, um, in 1993, I left that and started Bees for Development the next day in 1993 to be an organisation focused solely on beekeeping for development, um, so in, in poor countries. And yes, that was uh, 27 years ago now, and we are today a small but growing charity. Uh, beekeeping is a kind of funny subject that lots of uh, ministries of agriculture kind of miss beekeeping because where do you put it is it in horticulture is it in animal industry is it in forestry bees are so useful 
but they're, they're too clever by half. They don't quite fit into any one category. So quite often beekeepers in poor countries have no reliable source of advice. And if you want to help them really move on and make their beekeeping into a business, um, they need, uh, well, they rely on us for advice and help to do that. So nowadays we have a staff of um, about eight full-time employed people and uh, many community projects in, in the poorest parts of the world. And uh, my job is, is uh, really to raise funds for that work, which is very difficult, actually. <laughs> so a big part of the work is finding funding to carry on with it. Do you actually do training for people in the field or are you, um, are you offering, yeah, what's, what's your guidance sort of methodology to get people started? Yes, well, the, the, the best way, we, we completely insist on everywhere using local bees, local beekeeping methods. So the very best trainers are local trainers who know exactly how to keep bees best in that area. It's not about us traveling back and forward from the UK. So we always use local trainers in local language, with local bees, and all of the equipment has to be made and mended locally. There's no point bringing in stuff from outside because when the project finishes, they won't be able to get those things anymore. So it's beekeeping is the most wonderful um, low cost or no cost activity that even the most remote people can do and it's actually very poor people often live in places where the resources for beekeeping are much better than here they have you know they still have good flowering plants and good populations of bees so you can really do beekeeping for nothing and yet harvest honey and wax which have true market values so all of our training is with local trainers. We just um, enable that to ha happen. So we um, have projects and we have funding to pay trainers and for things like, uh, you know, good management of projects. But uh, we never send equipment or anything like that. Everything has to be locally sourced in all of our projects. And to keep the show on the road to raise funding we also do training of British people here in the UK we gradually realized that people here really do want to learn about more natural beekeeping and we also do courses on how to do beekeeping development and uh, how to make beautiful skeps Chris <laughs> because there's a great resurgence now in how to do more simple natural healthy beekeeping there is, isn't there? There's a there's a real wave rolling of a of a kinder yes. style of beekeeping, uh, yes. and and it doesn't necessarily mean that that because uh, some people think about sort of bee centred beekeeping and skep beekeeping or natural beekeeping, other ways of beekeeping, that it's something that you don't necessarily harvest honey from, but you but it it's not. You know, for thousands and thousands of years, people have been using these styles of beekeeping for that very reason to to then have a transaction with the bees, you know, give them a good home and and keep them free of pests and disease in exchange for some honey, of course, and, and wax and other products. So these, these are all different ways that you can support bees for development. So if, if, you know, someone sat at home listening now thinking, oh, how can I support 
Bees for Development? How can I support Bees for Development supporting beekeepers in other countries? Obviously, you have a website and lots of projects and, and other things that people can get involved with. Do you want to say some more about that? Oh, yes. <laughs> we, As I say, we are a small charity and uh, we have to raise funds for our work. And that's very difficult um, because nowadays uh, some of the big donors, they really only want to work with big organisations. Um, and so it's very hard for us to get grant funding. And we get amazing uh, support from a very large number of people who <laughs> send us whatever they can often beekeepers if they go and catch a swarm for somebody and uh, that somebody gives them a donation uh, that comes to us when beekeepers give talks they often send their fee to us Um, then we have all kinds of nice philanthropic people who just help us uh, with donations it's marvelous actually it's very heartening to know the the good support that we receive but of course we never have enough we have an incredible demand for our information. We send free, if somebody's organizing training in beekeeping anywhere in the developing world, we'll send them training materials free of charge. Um, and of course we have our own projects where we are really helping some of the most destitute people to work as beekeepers and create their own income. And we have continuously increasing demand for our services and we do rely on donations to support our work yes and you have a magazine that people can subscribe to and learn all about the projects and you know the very and see the people that are benefiting and all that kind of stuff don't you too yes yes that's right at the moment because the virus most of the postal services around the world have shut down so we're doing a, a a whatsapp broadcast at the moment now to stay in touch with beekeepers because we really want those poor beekeepers to realise that their beekeeping is a profession. It can be a business that they can build their livelihood on. Um, so we we help them a lot with improving their marketing, um, making uh, value-added products from honey and beeswax, more ways to really add value to their beekeeping and turn it into a, a source of business for them. Can you sort of uh, give us a real qualitative sort of um, example of like this person or this family or or, um, or this single mother who's now able to have a much better life? We work in Amhara in Ethiopia, which is a very, the poorest part of Ethiopia in the north of Ethiopia. Um, and we didn't really know it when we started working there about uh, 10 years ago, but it's a, a a terrible area for for child marriage and this is young girls that are married and the average age is about 13 and a half years so you know a lot of girls younger than that being married off and what often happens is that these girls um, they're married and the bride price goes to their parents it's a way for for very poor people to gain some income but these girls quite often then run home from their um, husband's family. They run back to their own family and then they're they're like an extra mouth to feed, but they have not been educated. Um, So they're really a burden when they go home to the family. And so we've been training a lot of these 
girls and I can think of one who's called Alam Nesh and I think we have a picture of her on our website and Alam Nesh uh, received beekeeping training and she did very well and she's now a beekeeper and when we interviewed her uh, she was wearing a very beautiful blue dress and she said that for the first time in her life she'd been able to have some money to buy her own clothes and she was uh, so delighted by the beekeeping and has plans to really increase and that that's an example of once you just give somebody the skills we don't really give anything else but the skills how to make a hive how to get a swarm how to harvest honey how to market that honey and she has those skills and suddenly she's transformed from just being a burden on her family to actually a young woman earning her own income um, and we have we have so many other stories like that wonderful yeah, yeah. Uh, transformation by bees that's brilliant oh thank you so so if you want to support uh, these girls in ethiopia or bees for development and you know create a, a wonderful styles of beekeeping and social change and, and many virtuous things then uh, you can you can do it by is, is it www.beesfordevelopment.org is that right perfect, perfect. yes yes read sheet or anything bees for development you'll find us yep. and yep. Uh, any support that you can give us is is marvelous amazing well i love listening to nicola she's mm. she just she's just really great to listen to and her, you know her voice and everything she says and so and yeah exactly. i was really good, thinking it? that so measured so calm so clear yeah 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 and what an amazing line of work to be in yeah and really helping grassroots people on you know in develop you know developing countries is kind of one of those overused words isn't it but just helping people you know over the world who are not as fortunate as we are is that the right word maybe that's it maybe even that is a bit all these words are getting very loaded aren't they say, i mean what is development we need to und you know we need to kind of put brakes on all this development anyway don't we really um right, yeah. so it's all very odd but yeah but what i love is this way that they are with bees for de development not coming in with any agenda are they using the local resources never coming with anything to offer in a way except uh, words and knowledge um but then supporting the the local community yeah. to get involved and that seems to me absolutely perfect so it's not like trying to um you know achieve any sense of of uh kind of um you know this is the way we do things but it's actually yeah, just feel, enabling yeah, them yeah i feel strongly about that yeah not westernizing beekeeping in yeah. other countries we're not you know showing them that this is the scientific way to do it it's uh it's supporting the indigenous culture and their traditions and their styles and their materials yeah. and, the, and the people and and and, and learning how, from them, you know. Yeah. And helping yeah. people to link back to nature through um, through basically an animal which is completely in tune with nature, yeah. isn't it? And and essentially how... So I love that. Uh, the I love the thought that she had that people... That forests can be saved by helping people to keep beekeeping going within those forest environments. But that whole notion of people linking back to nature, it seems to me the indigenous, you know, lots of indigenous communities have never lost sight of that. And that's why I say we should learn from them, because what I also loved was this idea that, you know, in poorer, economically speaking, places, um, she said a couple of times, didn't she, about the natural resources 
being richer for it. And, you know, that I find that kind of thing is just really bends your mind in a really positive way. There's a wonderful saying in Latin. It's Pliny the Elder, I think, was the guy that said it. He said, ubi apis ibi salus. That's wherever there are bees, there is health. And that's not just, you know, human health. Don't think of that just with a kind of human view. It's also animals and trees and plants and, and, and all of nature. They do they do so many good things. And and we can do so many good things for bees for development. There's so many different ways to help them by just donating money, you know, visit their website or, or you could buy things and order things. There's a brilliant way you can help both bees and the projects they do is by uh, buying one of their, it's like a wild bee box. I forget what it's called, like a bee house for, for a swarm to kind of settle in. You can put it on the side of your house or, or if you have a big garden somewhere in your garden and bees will inhabit it and you don't have to be a beekeeper. It's just providing wild wild habitat and and a Funding bees for development. There's a safaris that you can go on. There's so many things. Yeah. So to find out more about about bees for development, you can visit the the website as we mentioned, uh, www.beesfordevelopment.org. Uh, find out lots of information on there about how to donate to them, um, and how to get involved, and maybe go on a bee safari. Perhaps we should all book on one. Mm, that'd be great, wouldn't it? God, when we can all stop moving around again. <laughs> How are we going to get there though? Don't want to fly. I know. You know. I was thinking about how to get to New Zealand last year and I did some research and, you know, like a, a, a ship is more carbon debt than a plane. And uh, and I think the, the the most ethical way to go would be to, like, to travel all the way through, through Europe and Russia, somehow get to Japan and then go down on a on like a freight shipping ship or something like that. OK. <laughs> Who wants well, to do that? Yeah. Uh, you know, it would take you a few months, wouldn't it, <laughs> yeah. just to do that? <laughs> I thought it was really interesting what Nicola was saying about honey being a, a delicacy in, in, in other countries. You know, it's considered as a, as a, as a uh, you know, having a small amount of honey is, is, is a treat, whereas we, you know, tend to eat mm-hmm. um, quite a bit of honey. You know, everybody, you know, you can buy, it, buy, buy honey at the supermarket and lavish it onto, you know, yeah. onto toast or whatever. So uh, I just thought it was really interesting how it's seen as a different concept. Um, and as a medicine yeah. as well in many many of the places that, sh- that Bees for Development work in. Good stuff. Yeah, that was really wonderful to hear from Nicola. And we've got lots of great stuff coming up on future episodes. Uh, we've got Nikki Gammon. Um, we've got a lovely interview with um, with Sam Day um, about the Asian Hornet. We've got David Ch- talking to David Charles. And uh, Dr. Jerry Briley about uh, apotherapy. Gladstone Solomon, who we're going to be contacting in uh, Tobago. So and his wife Sharon. And his wife Sharon. So lots of great stuff coming up. And uh, rate and subscribe to us and uh, join us again on Living Being. See you soon. Cheerio.